know if you haven't even noticed that said we, we looked at that passage last week. I thought we were going to move on to something else. It kind of reminds me of that young pastor who went to Buell call at his church and um, his new church and preached this really, really wonderful message. And they were so inspired and encouraged by this young man's message that uh, they voted on him and he came. Well, on his first Sunday, he preached the same message he preached when he came in view of a call. Well, everybody thought, you know, that's a great message. We need to hear it twice. Amen. That's right. And so then the second Sunday came and he got up to preach. And guess what? He preached the same sermon he had preached two previous times. Well, you know, they kind of started a little murmuring in the church. You don't know what that's like, do you? And uh, so everybody went home. And then the following Sunday, he got up and preached the same sermon again. Well, that began to really create some conflict and some conversations and finally the deacons sort of began to hear some things and so they decided the couple of them to go talk to the pastor so they set up a time and went to see him and said pastor you know that first sermon you preached in people call was incredible it was great we needed that the second time you came to preach on that first Sunday we needed that we really needed to hear that twice the third time you preached it we were a little bit suspicious now the first fourth time you finally preached it we're wondering do you have any other sermons he said, yes, I have a, a few more sermons still in my, you know, little bag of sermon tricks, so to speak. And he said, well, we're wondering if you're ever going to get to them. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll get to those other sermons when you do what I've asked you to do in the last four. We'll move on to the next. You know, I think sometimes you and I find ourselves in a spot where we really don't need to hear any more from God because there's so much we've already heard from him that we don't need any additional things to do. We are many times not doing the things that we know that we're already supposed to be doing. And we need to be constantly reminded of those things that we know that while they are in the back of our minds and we know we should be doing them, we're not doing them. And so this is a sort of a reminder as we go back to the passage that we studied last week, this very important subject called praise. Now, we're not just talking about any kind of praise we're talking about bold praise for there's a bold praise that when you boldly praise him you will walk away from that encounter with God with a greater boldness to not only live for him but continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that he has declared that we should take to a lost and dying world and that's what happens to these disciples here so the question as we begin our study this morning is simply this. When you find yourself between that rock and that hard place, when you find yourself with your back up against the wall, when the enemy rises up and seeks to intimidate you and, and threatens you and seeks to cause you to shrivel in your faith and become weak at the knees, or your face may be with something that seems catastrophic, something that is out of control, something greater than yourself, what do you do? Well, I know what I do. Now, I know that Bob and I were talking about this a little bit in a text here last night, and, and uh, you, you do realize that I'm not perfect, right? I, I'm not perfect. I'm not, but neither are you. There are no perfect people, and there are no perfect pastors. We're human beings, and we live sometimes in the natural, not in the supernatural. And because of that, me, like you, there are times in my life when we often have a tendency to take a look at some of what the enemy threatens to do or what we think he may or may not do. Or maybe we see a circumstance or a situation that is greater and above and beyond ourselves and our own doing. Where do we turn? I know where I turn. I turn to praise. I don't listen to secular music anymore. I just don't. 
I have a little thing called Pandora, and this is not a commercial for them, and it's on my iPhone, and I only listen to Christian music, and I have songs that I have selected, and, and because my really wonderful new Ford pickup truck, for those of you who are not up to my level, Bob, sorry, um, he got a red Dodge, but nevertheless, and others drive other vehicles, but it pairs with my iPhone, and so all I listen to, I don't even have my antenna anymore, I took it off. Because I don't listen to secular music. I don't listen to radio talk. All I listen to is praise music. And if you see me in my truck, you may see me sometimes totally oblivious to anything around me, just what's in front of me. And I'm singing sometimes at the top of my lungs in my truck as I'm praising God. Because there's something about praise that, that revitalizes and encourages and uplifts those of us who do it. It's not just something that we do on Sunday morning. It's a lifelong practice of something I believe we should do every day. And if you don't have the habit or the practice or the desire to worship him outside of this auditorium, then I'm saddened for you, and you do not know what we're about to tr describe nor talk about today. For bold praise in your life results in a bold faith. And these Christians had their backs up against the wall for the first time in since Jesus died and rose from the dead. And I believe they were feeling somewhat invincible. But God has reminded them in Acts 4, 23 to 28, after Simon Peter and John had been released, that they need to seek him as much now as they ever had before. And he's teaching this church about praise, as he teaches us today. So there are six things that I want to talk about real briefly about what bold praise is. Number one, bold praise grows out of belief. Bold praise grows out of belief. It is a belief, now get this, it is a belief that you are at the end of your rope. Not at the end of the rope, the end of your rope. And I think one of the things that, that motivates us more than anything else to, to experience and to give God this bold praise is when we finally get to the point where we recognize that in and of ourselves we are hopeless. We are doomed unless God prevails. And I think one of the reasons why we often have a tendency not to praise him as we should is because we lack a sense of genuine desperation. Unless God intervenes, nothing will happen. And we who live in the Midwest are people who pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we like to do it ourselves. And it isn't until God breaks us and brings us to our knees in total desperation do we then cry out to God in praise. Notice what happens in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, we'll stop there in verse 24. And when they heard it, we see that that Simon, Peter, and John were released from prison. They, they then reunite with their friends, their brothers in the faith. They report to them what happens, but don't miss what is said in the beginning, in the opening verse of verse 24. And when they heard it, they heard it with understanding. For the very first time, they realized that opposition was serious. I can imagine, as I mentioned in my introduction, that more than likely, these people were feeling pretty much invincible. 
I mean, if you can imagine, you know, they were feeling defeated when Christ was crucified and he was buried and his dead body was put in a tomb. And they were, they dissipated and they were devastated and they thought it was over. And then he rose from the dead. And they spent all that time with Jesus. And he was instructing and teaching them. And then he promised them this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they go to the upper room and they're praying and they're waiting. And then finally the 120 were there and the Spirit descended upon them in Acts chapter 2 like tongues of fire and landed on them. And they not only received the beautiful person of the Holy Spirit, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Simon Peter then steps out and then preaches the first message filled with the Spirit. And we know that what? Thousands were converted. What a revival. We see that on top of that, more things are beginning to happen. And it seems as if they are being unopposed, that the adversary has been defeated, and they are experiencing these incredible results in what they're doing. And then all of a sudden, here comes this opposition. Simon Peter and, and John are preaching on Solomon's court, and they are arrested in the middle of their message, and they are put into prison, and they stand before this Sanhedrin 71 of the, of the who's who of Israel, giving an account of their testimony of Jesus, and they are filled with the Spirit, and they testify about the resurrected Jesus and in whom they crucified. But unable to do anything about it, they have to release them. And so... Simon, Peter, and John then make their way to their friends and their fellowship of Christians and say, you know what? We have been threatened. It's the first time they've been threatened since Christ rose from the dead. Now, we've talked about this. I did a couple times with some people this week. We often have a tendency to think that these incredible apostles were people different than us. That they were anything but human but they were human beings. And just because you received the Spirit and been filled with the Spirit doesn't mean your humanity just disappears. And I can imagine that with this incredible revival of 8,000 plus people saved and this invincibility and this success rate that the early church is having, they're pretty much thinking it's going to be like this from now on until all of a sudden they are awakened to the reality that there is an opposition that rejected Jesus and is resisting them. And if they continue to do this, they're going to die for their faith. And they've not experienced this yet. And all of a sudden, their instant response and reaction to this opposition from these opponents to the gospel who have threatened them with their lives begin to praise him. And this praise grows out of a belief of desperation. That God, they are greater than us. They outnumber us. They outman us. They outweapon us. They have the authority and the power, but yet you, God, are the ones that we need to turn to. And I guarantee you, if you don't have a sense of desperation in your own soul, in your own spirit this morning, you haven't really worshipped him. Number two, bold praise only grows out of belief, but it generates community or it generates unity. Look at the verse in verse 24. The verse then continues, they lifted their voices together to God and said... They lifted their voices together to God and said, they lifted. They shared their concern with God. 
they lifted, they lifted, they looked up and they lifted their concern to God and they lifted their voices. They sounded out to God what their concern was. It wasn't that they believed that God was unaware or unconcerned, but they were then driven and filled with a concern and they lifted their concern to God. They lifted their voices and they sounded it out to him. But notice together, I mentioned this briefly last week, but they were together. That word means one accord. They were not single voices. They were unified voices with one accord. Some theologians believe that there was only one prayer. I have a tendency to contend with that because the words that are used here and the constant reference here is to they, not to one, but to they. It's the plural over and over and over again. They lifted their voices together to God. It was a togetherness here. And notice they lifted together and they said, they spoke. And as I mentioned last week, I'm not sure there were any instrumentations at all. And the only thing they lifted up to God in praise was the words that they spoke. And these words spoken could have been singing. They could have been songs of praise, but they lifted their voices in praise to God. The enemy has sought so far to divide so that he can conquer. How do you get that? Well, if you remember that there was a unified front when they were on Solomon's porch and Simon, Peter, and John, they were preaching the gospel, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and they were arrested. And upon that arrest, they drug them into prison, right? Separated them from the other believers. Believing and thinking that separating them from the other believers, they can intimidate these two because, you know, the reason they released them was because, what, out of fear of the crowd. But they weren't afraid of the crowd when it was just Simon, Peter, and John. And that's what the opposition likes to do. He likes to divide and conquer because he knows that if he can divide and conquer, he can render our praise less powerful and often less effective because there is strength when we come together and we offer to God praise. That's why we gather here on Sunday morning. And there's a rhythm about life. And those that don't understand the rhythm about the Christian life are missing out and their, their lives are more power, less powerless, are more powerless, and their, their lives are not quite as bold. For example... When, you, when we come in here on Sunday morning, we, we leave here and we go out where? Into the world, right? And the world that we lived in, even though it's Wichita, Kansas, isn't quite as, as, as Christian as we would like it to be. And there are testings and tribulations and there are trials and there's hardship and there's, there's bad news and there's, there's, there's disease and there's sin and there's broken relationships and there's jobs and there's family and there's all of these things and so we're out there Monday through Saturday out there and all that worldly stuff and then we come together on Sunday morning to do what to gather together to praise and then we go back out on the world again and then we come back together again on Sunday and then we go back out again and then we come back in and it's that rhythm that actually brings boldness and strength into the life of the believers so that as together we lift our voices to him we leave emboldened empowered and equipped to live the life and to continue to proclaim the gospel 
because we see that as they finished this time of praise, they continued with boldness to share the gospel. What caused the boldness? That togetherness in praise and worship. Number three, bold praise not only grows out of belief and generates community, but it glorifies God exclusively. It glorifies God exclusively. Look at verse 24. And before we read this, let me say this. You might want to write this down. God shares his glory with no one. God shares his glory with no one. There are no elitists in the kingdom of God and in the discipleship order. There's no one that he will share his glory with. I don't care how important you may think you are and how much you bring to the table. He shares his glory with no one. Notice the text. They come together to God. They come together to God. Praise is directed toward God. If your praise is directed to anything or anyone else other than God, it is misdirected and it will not result in any boldness whatsoever as you seek to live out your calling before a lost world. Not only is praise directed toward God, but it's devoted to his reign. Notice, to God and they said, Sovereign Lord. They declared that he was Sovereign Lord. They were declaring that you are Lord over my life. You are the one that dictates and controls the outcome, but you are the one who is Lord in my life. We humbly submit to your leadership. We submit to your lordship. You are the one who reigns over us. And that's hard for us, especially in the Midwest, because we don't like anyone to tell us what to do. I know I don't. It started when I was born. How about you? It did. And for those of you who are raising children, you know how difficult it is because they want what they want, don't they? And if you could just beat them into submission, you would try, but it doesn't work. And here they say in this aspect of praise, Lord, you are Lord, you are sovereign over my life. I am yours and you are mine. You reign in me and praise also is defined by a belief. Notice the belief who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's incredible. Why was that necessary? They were defining their belief. Their belief what not only do you reign in and over me, but you reign and rule over everything, including that Sanhedrin, those 71 dudes of the who's who of Israel who have said, if you keep proclaiming and preaching the gospel, you will die. And they are saying, not only do you reign over me, but you reign and rule over my circumstance. They're not the final authority, God. You are the final authority. And we often have a tendency to think that the physician is the final authority. Right, Clint? Why was that song important to you? Because you have a physical condition you're struggling with, and people in here may not know that. There was passion in his song. Why? Because he's in, a, uh, he's, he's in between that rock and that hard place. He's, he's on a, on a, in a position in his life where he, he's learning about praise. And it, we didn't have opponents and obstacles and difficulties, we probably wouldn't praise much. 
But he's Lord over your circumstance. He's Lord over your situation. I don't care what the doctors say. I don't care what the enemy says. I don't care what the opponents of the gospel say. It doesn't really matter what they say about Emmanuel because he is sovereign Lord and he reigns here. And he is in control of our future, not us. Because praise glorifies God exclusively and he shares the glory with no one. And any time we begin to look in the mirror or any time we begin to, to, to dispense praise to others, we are taking the glory from God. And that is a dangerous position to stand on because it carries no weight with God. Bold praise always glorifies God. Number four, bold praise grips onto God's word. Notice verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. It's not by accident that he's quoting from, they are quoting from Psalms 2, 1 and 2. Maybe by, because of, of, uh, uh, of the cleft notes. I don't know how much of the psalm they must have, must have shared with God in their time of praise. But really the, the word of God was, was one of the elements. It was the foundational aspect of their praise. And the word of God should always have its prevalent, prevalent position in our praise. Our praise should be biblical. Our praise should be scriptural. Our praise should magnify and glorify the gospel. And anything less than that kind of praise isn't the kind of praise that emboldens and equips and energizes and encourages the believer. It grips on, it grabs the word of God. And the word of God, it says, was revealed in which he revealed his truth by the inspiration of giving King David the gift of the Holy Spirit so he, through that inspiration, could then write down what God's mind and God's heart was to God's people. He was the vessel and the instrument that God used. But God, in his word, as we praise him through his word, reveals to us these beautiful truths. Why? Because it is there that he reminds us that we should expect this opposition. Notice what he says next. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were. Stop there. And the rulers were. In Psalms 2, 1 through 2, he's already helping us understand as they are helping themselves in their aspect of praise. God does, was not surprised by this. God foreknew this. He already told this that it would happen. So we should have been aware. We should have been ready for not if, but when praise comes. I mean, when adversity comes. It's going to come. It's going to come. And when Scripture becomes a part of our, of our praise, it reminds us that the enemy is real and opposition is going to come, and we must prepare for that. And that's one of the aspects of why we praise. But in the last part of verse 26, it says, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. It, it reinforces our faith when we praise because if you take a look at what it says, all together, together against the Lord and against his anointed one, he's reminding us as they are reminding themselves as they pray, this battle is not ours. It's not ours. The battle you have with the doctor is not yours. The battle you have in this 
conflict is not yours. The battle you have against the enemy is not really yours because he's coming against you. Prepare for it. But as he comes against you and we prepare for it, remind ourselves in the word of God as we're praying, Lord, the battle is yours. The battle is not mine. And in our praise, we are reminding ourselves, not him, because God doesn't need to be reminded, but we are reminding ourselves in praise, it is your battle. And because it is your battle, it is you who will grant the victory, not us. And time and time again in the Old Testament, we'll see that if we have time at the end, people who put their trust in the Lord and praised him in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the trouble, each and every time, God did not forsake them. He saved them. God's word anchors our faith in troubled times, and it facilitates our praise. Number five, it gives unquestioned hope. Bold praise gives unquestioned hope. It's interesting in verse 27. They continue, Psalms 2, one, verse 1 and following. But here they give an application to the psalm because the psalm is a messianic psalm. Uh, it was God giving King David a messianic psalm, a psalm about the future Jesus who was coming to the planet earth, who would die for their sins, who would be raised from the dead. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Their praise here is exalting the Savior. It's exalting the Savior in the midst of their praise as they are anchoring their praise in the word of God. They are looking to Jesus, and as they look to Jesus, they are reminded that he was the anointed one that God sent. He was the one that God had appointed to be the Messiah, and he came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, to then be arrested, tried, condemned, murdered on a cross for your sins and my sins. They put him in a tomb. They rolled the stone over the tomb. They sealed the, sto the, the, sto the, the stone, the tomb, and they put guards on it thinking, it's over. We have succeeded. It's finished. Can you imagine how proud they were when they marched back to their, their homes or maybe back to their, their kangaroo court and they sort of, you know, assessed the the day and their success and they were patting themselves on the back and throwing a, a party. We finished this Jesus thing to only be surprised three days later he rose from the dead and he appeared to disciples and he, he preached and he taught and he helped and then he ascended to heaven and now these disciples are now in the, in the temple court standing on Solomon's porch proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They arrest him only to hear in the midst of this kangaroo court that in fact Jesus whom you rejected and resisted has been raised from the dead. He's not dead. He is alive and he lives in and through us. They're exalting in their praise the resurrected Jesus. And what did that do? It emboldened their faith. It gave them hope. Because you see, those same people that are against Jesus are against us. Why? Because they're against Jesus in us. And they may have threatened us. They may accuse us. They may say, you're going to kill us. But even though they thought they killed Jesus, they can't stop the advancement of the gospel. Or they can't do any more to us 
than what God allowed to be done to Jesus. And even though that may come, they can't stop the advancement of the gospel. And it gave them incredible, unquestioned hope as they were praising. That's what praise does. It gives us hope. It gives us an expectation. It gives us an assurance that as we leave this place, it's not only a, uh, it's not about us. It's not up to us. It's about him. And guess what? I've read the last page of my New Testament. We win in the end. It is true we may not win every battle, but we eventually win the war. And so bold praise will give you hope in very troubled times. But lastly, bold praise will guide my trust in God. It will guide my trust in God because when we're in between that rock and that hard place and, and we find ourselves with our backs up against the wall and the doctors or, or whoever says there's no hope, there's, there's nothing we can do, um, where do we find trust? In whom do we place our trust? We put our trust in God. And notice at the conclusion of their praise because this is where their praise ends whether this is a, a prayer that included praise or it was a praise that stood on its own, it doesn't really matter. But a part of their prayer was praise. The beginning of this encounter with God, in desperation, they're coming to him and they're saying, Lord, we trust you regardless of the outcome. And I call that trust. I trust you regardless of the outcome. Because, you see, the enemy wants us to look at our circumstance and our situation and even look at the enemy and, and, and lose all trust in God. But when we praise him and we see him for who he is and we see our circumstance for what it is, there's something about it that enables us to walk away completely trusting in him regardless of the outcome. And this is where a lot of people have a problem. They trust him as long as the outcome is what I want. And I can trust you. But what if it's not what you want? What if it's not what you want? Because there, there were many who were martyred for their faith in Jesus. I've been to the place in Rome, in that arena, and I have stood there in that, that, that arena and looked down where Christians were, were mangled by animals and they were speared by spears, they were lashed with swords and they were mocked and they died for their faith while they were singing praise to God in the process. And yet, these people know what's coming if they continue to boldly proclaim the gospel. And if you read verse 31, which we started with last Sunday, they, when they left this time of praise, they left and they continued to proclaim the word of God, it says, with boldness. They put their trust in God, and regardless of the outcome, they were going to do what they had been called by God to do, and they were willing to die for their cause. And it says here in verse 20, 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. D don't read over that quickly. That, that's an amazing verse to me because to do whatever, not to do what I want, but to do God whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever your will. Whatever brings you glory, whatever it is, I am willing and I want that to be done. Whatever is in your plan. Notice, whatever 
your hand. They recognize and realize in their praise that it's the hand of God that is in their circumstance. We sang that last week. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you. He's got your circumstance. He's got your situation. He's got your enemy. He's got your adversaries. He's got your adversity. It's in his hands. He is not an absentee landlord. He cares about you. He knows about you, and he loves you, and he is not absent. And his hand is not absent. He is working. He is doing. He is orchestrating. He is maneuvering. Did you know, write this down, Psalms 2-4. The beautiful passage, Psalms 2-4. I, I should have mentioned earlier, and it just now came to me. Psalms 2-4. Did you know that's the only place where it says that God laughs? God laughs. It says in, in Psalms 4, the Lord who sits on the throne laughs. <laughs> he's laughing why these little ants of human beings in all of their glory in their pomp and their circumstance 71 of them of the who's who of israel think that they can stop me <laughs> they're fools no one Nothing can stop the hand of God. I don't care who we think we are or who anyone thinks they are, including Satan himself. He cannot stop God's plan and God's purpose. God's hand is involved in our circumstance. Notice, because he has a plan, and sometimes we don't like to hear that, but there is a plan sometimes in our adversity. Three times Paul prayed for God to remove his thorn from his side. And each time God says, my grace is sufficient. Did we forget about that? He has a plan. And notice that he predestined it to take place. God has determined the outcome. And when man somehow thinks that they have determined the outcome, <laughs> do we see God as a laughing God? I think Jesus laughed a lot with his disciples. He was a jokester. And I think God laughs on his throne when we think we have, we're so full of ourselves that we somehow think that we can alter the outcome of the plan and the hand of God. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. You might want to go there. It's not on your screen. Joshua 6.20. Let's go there real quick. I want to read this first. I got a few minutes. I could be done early, but I wouldn't want to let you out early. Seven times, Joshua and his people told to march around the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, they were to blow their horn. Joshua 6.20. Well, before that, Joshua, as they were on the seventh day, Marching around the city, he said, Shout for the Lord has given us this city. It wasn't the instruments. Keep in mind, it wasn't the instruments. It was the shout of the people of God in praise. Shout to the Lord, for the Lord has given us this city. They were praising him, and when they praised him, what happened? So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down so that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. When did the walls come down? 
when they praised? When are your walls going to come down? Through praise. Second Chronicles 20. Flip over a couple other. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat and the army of God are facing numbers greater than their own. And verse 21 said, And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. And he told them, Say this, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. They were to praise him as they were marching in to confront the enemy. They were, the only thing they were going to do is to say this, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Some of you who get my prayers on Sunday morning, some of you pastors, You'll recognize this passage. He told them the battle is the Lord's. We won't have to fight. God will fight for us. And as we go into this battle, he's telling me to tell you, go in and just say, just simply, just say this, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Notice what happens in verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon. You skip all the way down to verse 23 to save time. They destroyed one another. Israel didn't even lift a sword to defend themselves. The enemy destroyed each other. Why? Because they put their trust in God and they praised him and they gave him the outcome. Acts 16, 25. We have Simon Peter who's in prison. He's in prison for the gospel. And about midnight, Paul and Silas, verse 25, were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. What were they doing in prison? Their lives were on the line, and they were singing and praying, singing hymns to God. I wonder if they were some of the old hymns that we sing, or maybe they were new hymns. And while they were doing that, notice suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. The shackles became loose when they started to pray. You think you're in shackles? You think you're enslaved? You think you're in bondage? You start praising God, and the shackles will drop every time. Job in 1315. Job 1315 came to the place and the point in his life where he said, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I'm thinking about the 21 Coptics. You've noticed and you've seen the pictures several years ago. These Coptic Christians are on a beach. They're in orange. Their faces are covered with a band or maybe with a cloth, and there's someone behind them dressed in black with a, with a knife to their throat. Would you like to be in a situation like that? What would you do? Beg for your life? You know what they did? What the, what the news won't tell you what they did before their throats were slit? They praised God together. The 21 sang songs of praise to Jesus before they were slaughtered. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And I wonder if we're willing to give God the outcome. And if we will allow our praise to be guided by our trust in him. For even though he slay us, even though we may die a thousand deaths for him, we will still praise his holy name. 
because he is the sovereign Lord and King of kings over our lives. And all we desire to do is to glorify him even in our death. For that is, I believe, the disciples' call. How many of you know the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like seas billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. How well is it with your soul today? Let's pray. song inside my heart.